Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Crime with Holly. I'm your host, Crime Holly, and before I dive into the details of this week's episode, I do want to give it a major warning. This episode is on the sexual assault and murder of a child, and I know that those details can be hard for a lot of people to listen to. This case is one that my husband has actually been struggling with, and it was him who told me that I should bring this case to the podcast. Recently, we watched a show about this case, and he's been very deeply disturbed ever since then. For days after watching the show, he would randomly bring up this case and talk about how he just doesn't understand how someone could harm a child the way in which this young girl was harmed. For him, it's one of those cases that I think will stick with him for a really long time. And I think it's a crazy reminder that there is just so much evil in this world. People who are waiting to do unspeakable things. So without further ado, let's get into the details of this case. Today's episode is on the murder of Polly Class. Polly Hannah Class was born on January 3, 1981, to her parents Mark and Eve. Polly was born in Petaluma, California, and Petaluma is located in Sonoma County and is in the North Bay region of the San Francisco Bay Area. At the age of three, Polly's parents decided to get a divorce. The marriage just wasn't working out. And despite their marriage ending, Eve and Mark made it a priority to continue to have a good relationship for the sake of their daughter. They wanted to give her the best possible life that she could have. And they didn't want her to be exposed to any kind of negativity between them as parents. They just wanted everything to be cordial and go very smoothly for her. So they remained friends. They were incredible parents to Polly. And I really admire the relationship or friendship, if you will, that they continue to have for the sake of their daughter. Polly spent a lot of time between both parents' homes, and her mother Eve eventually remarried and had another child named Annie. From my understanding, that marriage had also ended before Polly's murder, so her mom was a single mom with two little girls. Overall, Polly was described to be a good kid. She was kind to others, very sweet, extremely energetic, and full of life. She was extremely talented and she loved music. Polly played multiple instruments and she took several years of music lessons. She just loved to perform. Whether it was music or on stage for theater, she loved to be in front of people doing what she loved. Polly reminds me honestly of myself. Her dad describes times where Polly would film herself with her girlfriends pretending that they had a TV show, and then the girls then would sit down and watch it and then once more film again. 
That was something I totally did in the 90s with my girlfriends. I specifically remember filming a cooking show once where I made box cupcakes pretending to be a legit chef. So Polly truly was your typical 12-year-old girl in 1993. On October 1st, 1993, Polly was very excited because on that night, she was staying at her mom's house in Petaluma, and her mom said that Polly's two best friends, Jillian and Kate, could spend the night at the house for a fun sleepover. And Polly had some big plans for that night. Eve bought ice cream for the girls, they were going to play dress-up, make plans for their Halloween costumes, and they were fully intending on spending a ton of time playing on the Nintendo. And the idea was that they were going to stay up as late as possible. It was going to be a typical night for three 12-year-old girls. Around 6 p.m. before her friends got there, Polly had her nightly phone call with her dad where she talked about all of the amazing plans for the night. She was in good spirits and super excited. At the end of their conversation, Polly said, I love you, daddy, and Mark replied with, I love you too, baby. Jillian was dropped off at Polly's house first, and the girls eagerly awaited the arrival of Kate. Jillian and Polly sat on her porch waiting for Kate's mom to pull up, and when she did, the two girls sat stone still pretending that they were stone lions on a perch. Of course, they couldn't hold their positions for very long before they were all giggling, and that's how the remaining of the evening went. They spent a majority of the time in Polly's room laughing, playing, and just soaking in the fun. Now, around 9.45 p.m., Eve went to Polly's room to tell the girls that she was going to bed early and to let Polly know that her little sister would be sleeping in Eve's room so that Polly and her friends could continue to enjoy their night. Eve was going to bed early that night because she had a really bad migraine that she just couldn't shake. So she told the girls goodnight, tried to keep it down, and then went to her room and took some medicine to help her sleep. And Eve fell asleep pretty quickly despite her pounding migraine. But she wasn't asleep for very long before Jillian and Kate were shaking her awake frantically. And Eve was not prepared for what they were about to say. Jillian and Kate told Eve that Polly had been abducted at knife point by a large man with a beard. Eve reacted immediately calling 911 and the Petaluma Police Department responded quickly. Jillian and Kate told the police officers that after Eve went to bed for the night, the three girls continued their evening. Sometime around 10.30 p.m., they decided that they wanted to go ahead and set up their beds where they were going to be sleeping. All three girls had planned to sleep in sleeping bags, including Polly, on her bedroom floor. Jillian and Kate started unrolling their sleeping bags on Polly's floor, and Polly popped up to go into the living room to grab her sleeping bag that her mom had already pulled out for her. When Polly pulled her bedroom door open, to everyone's surprise, there was a large bearded man standing in the doorway. He pushed Polly back into the room and demanded that all three girls get on the floor. 
And at first, Jillian and Kay actually thought that this was some kind of practical joke that Polly had planned, but it only took a few moments before they realized that that was not the case. The man was holding a real knife, and when her two friends looked at Polly, they realized that she had panic written all over her face. She was terrified. This was no joke. This bearded stranger demanded that the three girls lay on the ground, and he told them if they made a sound, he would slit their throats. So the three of them, scared completely out of their minds, did exactly what he said to do. One by one, he tied each girl up. But during all of this, he kept telling them that he wasn't going to harm any of them and that all he wanted was money. So while they were scared, they also were given a small shred of hope that this would be over sooner or later. While he was binding each girl's hands behind their back, he was asking them questions about which girl lived in the house, who was currently in the house, and if there was any money hidden anywhere. Polly pointed towards a jewelry box that had some money inside, but it was either not enough money or he really wasn't there for money because he continued with his plan. As the minutes ticked by, this man went from being calm to becoming more and more frantic. Eventually, he gagged the girls and then placed pillowcases over the heads of Jillian and Kate. He instructed the girls to stay put and not move and to count to 1,000. He told the girls that he was taking Polly, but once they had counted to that 1,000, Polly would be back and he would be gone and the entire ordeal would be over. He took Polly from the room and left the house, but instead of the girls counting to 1,000, they laid there as quietly as they could, listening for any sounds. When the entire house was silent for a good while, they finally decided to begin working to free themselves. It took them about 20 minutes before they were able to work themselves free, and once free, they ran to Eve, and then she called the police. When they arrived, they began securing the scene and started to look for any potential evidence. They found the bindings that had been used to bind Kate and Jillian. The man had used strips of fabric as well as the cords that he cut from the Nintendo controllers. They bagged the bindings, the controllers from the Nintendo, and dusted the entire house from top to bottom for fingerprints. And what they found was that the house hadn't been ransacked, there was no forced entry into any of the doors to the home, nor was there any forced entry into the windows. And the only thing that was missing from the entire house was Polly herself. While officers were looking for clues inside, another team of officers were tasked with going around the neighborhood and speaking to people asking if they had seen or heard anything. And quickly they met some people who lived in a small apartment behind Polly's house. These people said that they had their front door open, which was just a few feet from Polly's back door. As they watched a movie and ate pizza, the couple saw a man walk up onto Polly's porch and go inside the home. And this was around 10.30 p.m., which lines up with the timeline that Jillian and Kate had given. These neighbors didn't think anything of this because sometimes Eve would have friends or family that would stop by and walk into the home from the back. 
other people saw an unfamiliar man walking around Polly's street. They described him as wearing dark clothing and he was driving a small gray or black car. At 12.14 a.m., about an hour after Eve called 911, the Petaluma Police Department sent out an alert called an All Points Bulletin, or an APB, that went out to other police departments, letting them know to be on the lookout for Polly and anything suspicious. However, it was noted in the APB to not release this information to the press. The information was only given to the authorities. It was not released on any news stations or sent over the radio at all. And of course, back in 1993, this was before the time of the Amber Alert system. In 1993, they had nothing like that. So while this APB went out to the authorities, the FBI was also notified. Because this was a kidnapping case, the Petaluma Police Department felt like the best thing to do was to get the help of the FBI. The FBI team that was brought in to begin looking at this case were stunned by how bold of a kidnapping this was. This man walked into Polly's house at 10.30 at night. The lights were still on inside the home. He was unaware of who was in the house or if they were even asleep. He just walked in and took Polly. This was like nothing that the authorities had ever seen before. It was bold and as they put it, it completely defied logic. That night, with nothing left to do but wait for news and to wait for answers, Eve lit a single candle that she put in her front window for Polly, and every night she had that candle lit. It was her way of trying to light the way for Polly to find her way home, but unfortunately, that would never happen. On that same night, 30 miles away, down a dark private road called Pythian Road in Santa Rosa, a woman by the name of Dana Jaffe lived with her 12-year-old daughter. This road was a very steep and windy road that led directly to Dana's fenced-off property. This property was close to the public access, with a large gate that had private property signs listed all over. A little over an hour after Polly was abducted, Dana had arrived back home after her shift as a chef at a fine dining restaurant in Sonoma. Dana had a babysitter that she would have stay at her house to watch her 12-year-old daughter on the evenings that she had to work. After chatting for a few minutes with Dana, the babysitter got in her car and left the home and headed back down the dark private drive. A little bit down the long driveway, the babysitter came upon a man whose white Ford Pinto appeared to have been accidentally driven into the ditch. The look of this dude made the babysitter so uneasy. There was something about him that just made her feel completely uncomfortable. But there he was standing right in the middle of the road, and so she had to stop. The babysitter would later describe this man as looking like a Charles Manson type of person. He just looked crazed. 
The man came around the driver's side of her car, and so she cracked her window just a tad to hear what he had to say. She was smart enough to make sure her doors were locked and to only open the window just enough to talk to him. This man stuck his fingers into the crack of the window and started demanding that she got out of the car and helped him get his car out of the ditch. He was acting agitated and very aggressive, and this terrified her, so she took off down the road. As soon as she made it home, she called Dana to let her know what had happened and to warn her about what is lurking just beyond her gate. Obviously, hearing that a strange man was so close to the home that she only lived in with herself and her daughter, she was scared as well. This was a private driveway. There was absolutely no reason for anyone who didn't live there to be up there, let alone up there at midnight. She woke up her daughter, told her to get dressed, and that they needed to get out of the house now. Within minutes, the two were inside of the car with the doors locked and they started heading down that dark and windy road. When they came up upon the white pinto, the man wasn't inside of it and they didn't see him standing anywhere outside of the car either. And this just sent a chill down Dana's spine. She continued down the private drive and still didn't see this man anywhere, so she went to the nearest place in town so she could call the police. When she did, she told them that she had a trespasser on her property out wandering around, and two deputies from the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office responded. They met Dana at the base of the long private drive and followed her up the hill to the car, but this time the man was standing outside of it again. The way he was standing there against the car made it almost seem like he was waiting for them. By the time the authorities and Dana made it back to the man and his car, it had been at least 45 minutes since the babysitter had first witnessed him. The man apologized to Dana and the authorities, and he told them that he was up there because he was sightseeing. But let me remind you, it was midnight, so obviously it's dark outside. I'm not sure who he thought he was fooling by saying he was out sightseeing, but Dana did not buy it one bit. But he claimed that he was out sightseeing, he accidentally went up the private drive, and when he realized it was a private road, he tried to turn around, and that is when he got his car stuck in the ditch. With deputies on scene to handle this strange man, Dana and her daughter went back up to the house. She told them that she didn't want to press charges for him trespassing on her property, but she just wanted him gone. They began the task of trying to figure out who this man was and what he was doing. They asked to see his driver's license, and it checked out. They patted him down and noticed that his pants were wet and he was profusely sweating. Which obviously was odd given that it was a cool and crisp October night. They also noticed that his clothes were a mess, like he had been rolling around in the dirt and he had twigs and other debris in his hair. He told the authorities that he had been crawling around his car trying to put brush under the tires in hopes that he would be able to gain traction and get his car free. However, the deputies noticed that there wasn't any kind of brush or anything added under the tires at all, so his story really wasn't adding up. 
Now, another thing that didn't quite add up was that the babysitter told Dana that the man she had seen was wearing a sweater that was inside out. But when the deputies were questioning him, he was wearing a striped polo. Before letting him go, the deputies searched his car and they only found a duffel bag inside. They also performed a field sobriety test on him, which he passed. In 1993, they didn't have a way of pulling someone's criminal record while on scene, and due to some issues, they were unable to obtain that information over a radio call. They were, however, able to check for warrants, and this man did not have any. With Dana not wanting to press charges and the deputies not having anything on this man to bring him in for, the deputies were left to help pull the Pinto out of the ditch. When they finally got the car freed, the deputies followed the man back down the driveway and continued to follow him until he turned on to Highway 12. Unfortunately, while the officers were dealing with this man, the APB had gone out about Polly's abduction and they didn't hear it. Had they heard it, maybe this entire situation would have stuck out to them and had them looking further into who exactly this man was. Come daybreak, the news outlets had learned of Polly's abduction and the media went crazy. They splashed this story all over the newspapers, and every hour on the news, they were talking about Polly. They did anything and everything they could to bring awareness to this case, and Polly's story completely shook Petaluma to its core. But what is absolutely amazing is the amount of support that Polly and her family were shown during this time. People came out of the woodwork to begin helping however they could. A man named Bill Rhodes contacted the police and offered his services to help them. He owned a printing company called Pip, and he offered to make and print flyers to be passed out and hung all over Sonoma County. He had people lined up outside of his business for several blocks down the road, just waiting to get their hands on a stack of flyers to begin pasting them up everywhere. They also set up a space where people came by the dozens to help package up flyers to mail. It was almost like an assembly line. People were folding while others stuffed envelopes, sealed, and stamped them. And it was said that by the end of this, they had spent over $15,000 in stamps. They also had search parties all over Sonoma County searching any and all public land. Someone even called into America's Most Wanted, and they came out and featured Polly on one of their episodes. Even back then, they knew that the power of the media and getting these stories out there would help. And when America's Most Wanted featured Polly's story, it caught the eye of actress Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder at the time was a well-known star for her roles in the movies Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. She was from Petaluma, and when she saw Polly's story, she knew that she wanted to get involved and help however she could. Winona came to Petaluma ready to help, and she did a few press interviews sharing how she wants Polly found, and she even offered up $200,000 of her own money for a reward. 
With Winona showing up, this really kept the spotlight on the case, and the police and FBI were working like crazy trying to find clues and to follow all leads. Now, here is a pretty neat and interesting thing about this case. According to Time.com, Polly's case was the first time that a missing persons flyer was ever posted on the internet. This was during the time when the internet was just getting started, but everyone knew that people all over the world could gain access to this flyer. So they used this extra way to spread Polly's story beyond Petaluma and its surrounding areas. The FBI had also brought in some new technology that the Petaluma Police Department had never seen before. And with this technology, they were able to find some extra fingerprints that had been missed by the police. In total, they collected 48 fingerprints, including a palm print that appeared to have been made by an adult. This palm print was what the FBI thought was going to be their slam dunk. They put this print into the database and knew they just had to wait until they zeroed in on a suspect to compare it to. As the days and the weeks went by, Polly's parents were so exhausted. They just wanted their daughter home safe. They spent a lot of time working with the police, doing public pleas on the news for her safe return. They were at the headquarters working however they could. Obviously, this is extremely mentally draining for her family, and they were really feeling the weight on their shoulders. And when the police weren't finding a suspect, the public started really focusing on her parents. People would call into the police telling them that they hoped that they had investigated Mark Class because they felt like the way he was acting on TV was strange and off. When Mark heard the news that people were starting to suspect him as being involved in his daughter's disappearance, he volunteered to take a polygraph. He, of course, passed with flying colors, and the authorities ruled him out as being involved. This entire thing took a huge toll on Polly's family. Being thrusted into the limelight like that was hard. Obviously, people were accusing Mark of being involved. The family were constantly doing whatever they could in front of the cameras to beg for their daughter to come home. They did extensive news interviews just trying to pull on the heartstrings of possibly the person who was holding Polly captive. And then they got a call at one point from a little girl who was dared to call in to Mark. This girl said that she was Polly, that she was being held captive at a hotel, and then she hung up. This stirred up a ton of emotions for Mark because he was worried that it was actually, in fact, his daughter. A lot of man hours went into investigating that, and Mark sat around waiting on pins and needles for another call to come in, but it never did. Once the authorities tracked down where this call came from, they found the entire thing was a hoax and was just some young girl causing problems on a dare. The family also received ransom phone calls, and again, the emotional toll this takes on these families causes them to be near their breaking point. We see this often in these missing persons cases, and it just kills my soul that these families have to go through that. They're already under so much stress and heartache, and then to add these pranks is just horrific. 
In one of the interviews I saw with Polly's father and a few of the investigators, they talk about how Mark was nearing his breaking point. He wasn't sleeping, he was stressed and filled with so much anxiety, and he was trying to hold himself together, but this just about pushed him over the edge. He had to be given a pep talk on many occasions where the authorities told him that he needed to be strong for Polly, that Polly was out there somewhere waiting to be found, and he needed to be strong and keep pushing on. And push on, he did. After Mark was ruled out, the focus shifted towards Polly's girlfriends, Jillian and Kate. The authorities started to wonder if maybe somehow this was planned by the girls and Polly as some sort of a prank. These poor girls had been through some serious trauma. They were bound, gagged, had a pillowcase put over their heads, and listened while their best friend was walked out of the home and taken away. How incredibly horrifying and traumatic that must have been. And then to be interviewed for long periods of time, asked the same questions over and over. There were inconsistencies in their stories, though, that the authorities felt like could be a red flag. Their memories of what happened weren't exactly the same. One remembered laying in one area of the room while the other claimed that it was in a different area. One remembered the man wearing a headband while the other didn't. So the authorities kind of started questioning these girls like criminals. They accused them of lying. They accused them of orchestrating this story that Polly was abducted by a man and questioned if Polly had instead run off with a boyfriend. They even threatened the girls with going to juvie if they didn't tell the truth. The amount of pressure that they put on these girls is awful. And in current times, we have experts that are trained in interviewing children and adolescents, but back then, that wasn't a thing. These girls were literally thrown to the wolves like criminals. On the other hand, though, I know that the police had good intentions when trying to get the truth from these girls. They were working around the clock to try and find Polly alive and to bring her home. They just went about it wrong. I really feel for her friends on this entire situation. During the questioning of these girls, they also took them back to Polly's house and had them walk through the entire crime scene step by step. And while they fully didn't believe the girls, in the backs of their minds, they also felt like maybe their stories were true. The biggest thing that I think really led the authorities into believing that this was possibly a real kidnapping was the fact that the cords from Polly's Nintendo had been used to bind these girls. The cords were literally cut from the controllers, and I think it's safe to say that most kids would never dream of mutilating their gaming consoles like that, and so this really stuck out to the investigators as potential proof that this was the real deal, and not just Polly and her girlfriends playing a prank. However, they still weren't sold on the girls' story, so they decided to polygraph them. Jillian passed the polygraph, but Kate's came back as inconclusive. 
Prior to taking the test, Kate seemed agitated. She was holding on to her stuffed animal, and I can see how her nerves would be high after how much scrutiny she and Jillian had faced. The girls felt like no matter what they said, the police weren't going to believe them. It was after these polygraphs that the girls' parents had enough. They told the police that the girls were no longer going to talk to them, they weren't going to work with them, and that the girls had given everything that they could to the police. And pretty much now, it's the authorities' job to figure out what happened to Polly. Jillian and Kate were done helping. I do not blame their parents for stepping up and stopping the constant grilling of these young girls. I will say that while researching this case and watching interviews with the investigators, the investigators are extremely, extremely remorseful for the way in which they handled these girls. I don't think anything quite like this had ever happened at that time, and there was no trainings, handbooks, or even proper protocols given on how to handle a situation of this magnitude. Obviously, investigations and policing have come a long way since then, and no amount of apologies will erase the additional trauma that these girls had to endure. But again, I do think that they were really trying to do right by Polly and get to the bottom of what happened and what was true. So initially, when the girls were working with the police, they helped them create this sketch of the man who took Polly. And the sketch that was created, they never really were happy with the way that it turned out, and they didn't feel like it accurately represented what the man looked like. And so even though the girls weren't working with the police anymore, a forensic sketch artist by the name of Jeannie Boylan was eventually hired, and she was hired because she has this very unique ability to really listen to victims and then create very incredibly accurate sketches. She had a very calming sense about her that made victims really relax, and she just did an amazing job to get the girls to be comfortable with her. She spent several hours with the girls just there, chatting it up with them, getting to know them. And I even saw a brief clip of the girls sitting down out to lunch, eating with Jeannie, and they just looked so relaxed and so calm. For several days, she worked with the girls, and they were able to come up with a brand new sketch that the girls felt really resembled the man that took their best friend. As soon as the girls were happy with this sketch, it was sent off to the police and to the media. Once more, incredible volunteers gathered to help distribute the new flyers and to get them into as many hands as possible. The FBI was also working on creating a profile of the kidnapper. They believed that this man was likely a career criminal. To be so bold to walk into a small home and kidnap a girl in front of her friends with the mother sleeping in a room across the hall, that screams someone comfortable and confident in his criminal behavior and abilities. They also felt like this was not a random abduction, and they believed that the man had been watching Polly and specifically targeted her for what they believe was a potentially sexually motivated crime. 
Ten days after Polly's abduction, the Vallejo Police Department called the Petaluma police to let them know of a similar situation that had just occurred. A man by the name of Xavier Garcia broke into the home of a woman in Vallejo who also had a 12-year-old daughter. He was caught, thankfully, and nothing happened to the mom or the daughter, but Xavier was a career criminal, he was a sex offender, and when he broke into their home, he had with him a rape kit that consisted of duct tape, other bindings, blindfolds, and more. Not only was the crime pretty similar as far as breaking into the home of a mother and a 12-year-old child, but he also kind of resembled the sketch. He had dark hair, he had a beard like the man who took Polly, and they thought, okay, this could be our guy. For weeks, they spent over 10,000 investigative hours looking into Xavier Garcia, and despite it seeming like they got their guy, they couldn't make any connection between him and Polly's case. So back to the drawing board, they went. But it wouldn't be long before they got a very important phone call. On November 27, 1993, Dana Jaffe, the woman I talked about earlier who had the trespasser on her property, made a huge discovery. On that day, a friend of Dana's came over and the two had planned to go hike the trails on her property. While on their hike, they found a men's sweater that was turned inside out with the arms laid out wide. They also found a pair of little girl's red tights, as well as a white strip of cloth that had knots in it. Alongside these items, they also found a used condom. Red flags were flying in her mind that this could potentially be a crime scene, so she immediately went back home and called it in. Now, officers responded, obviously, but at first they were assuming that some young kids had been on her property partying it up and that nothing would come of this. However, when they got there and started looking at the items that were left behind, it became shockingly clear that the white fabric that had the knots in it looked an awful lot like the fabric that was used to bind Polly's friends. The lead investigator in Polly's case was called out to examine what was found, and he also felt like this was a promising lead. But who could have left it? He started talking to Dana, and she told him about the late night in October when a strange man turned up on her property. It was then that she realized that the location of these items, not far from the ditch he had his car stuck in. She described everything she could to the investigators. She told them about how strange this man was. She talked about his behavior and how he looked like a complete mess, how aggressive he was towards the babysitter, and the hair on the back of all of their necks stood up. This was a huge break in the case. They were able to get the records from the call that night, and finally they had a name of a suspect. Richard Allen Davis. And when they pulled up his records and saw his mugshot, the resemblance to the sketch was undeniable. All of the characteristics were there and nearly matched his picture to a T. 
On top of the resemblance to the sketch, this man has a rap sheet that was extensive. And they also learned that at the time of Polly's abduction, Richard had only been out of prison for about six months, and that charge that he served time for was for kidnapping. The items found on Dana Jaffe's property were collected and rushed to the lab for immediate testing, and they found that the cloth that was used to bind Jillian and Kate and the cloth that was found on Dana's property were a perfect match. Not only that, but because Richard Allen Davis was a convicted criminal, they had his fingerprints at the ready. They compared the palm print that was found in Polly's bedroom to Richard's prints on file, and again, it was a match. This time, they for sure had their guy. While a team was tasked to hunt down Richard, another was in charge of searching Dana's property for any other evidence or possibly Polly herself. It was all hands on deck for this search. They had local, state, and federal law enforcement out doing what they could to find Polly. Helicopters were used in an aerial search of the property. Dogs and professional search teams were used on the ground, and they found nothing more. Meanwhile, the team tasked with finding Richard learned that he was staying at a home of a family member on the Coyote Valley Indian Reservation about an hour and a half north of Petaluma. Three SWAT teams were sent in to swarm this house and the surrounding area, and when they finally kicked the door down, they were shocked to find that he was not inside. But shortly after entering the home, another officer on scene radioed over that they found him inside of his pinto further down the road. Richard had shaved off his beard, only leaving himself with a mustache and what was likely an attempt to change his appearance so he didn't resemble the sketch as much. He was handcuffed and taken back down to Petaluma to be questioned. They also towed away his pento for further forensic testing. Now, right off the bat, Richard denied having any involvement with Polly's abduction, which is no surprise, and he also was acting very arrogant and cocky, and almost like he was this untouchable, cool guy. Months had gone by by the time he was arrested, and so plenty of time for him to sit and stew on what he was going to say for an alibi. But as he was talking, he started talking about while in prison, he beat up and killed child molesters and child rapists and so on. And that piqued the interest of the interrogators because not once had they mentioned anything about sexual assault or rape when it came to Polly. So it almost seemed like he was admitting something by talking about his distaste for child molesters almost as if he was trying to come off as someone who is more of a hero, if you will, by beating up or killing these molesters in prison, when instead he actually was the monster he pretended to hate, if that makes any kind of sense. As their questioning shifted and became more aggressive, you could tell that Richard was becoming more and more agitated, and eventually he told the authorities that he was done talking to them and that he wanted an attorney. Now, at this time, Richard hadn't been charged with anything to do with Polly, and instead he was being held for a parole violation. 
The prosecutor was trying to figure out how to proceed with Polly's case and which charges he wanted to press against Richard because they weren't sure if Polly was dead or alive. And while in the middle of working through that, the prosecutors received a very unexpected phone call from Richard himself. Richard had learned that his palm print had been found at the scene of the crime, and he finally wanted to talk. They brought him in again to the interrogation room, and they got him some coffee, they offered him a cigarette, and this was all done to get Richard to relax and feel comfortable. They chatted with him some, offered him some more coffee, and when it finally appeared that he was comfortable enough, they asked him the most important question. Is Polly alive? And he answered with a no, she's not alive. They asked him to describe what happened that night, and he said that he was in Petaluma to visit his mother, but he couldn't get a hold of her, so he went to a 7-Eleven, picked up some beer, and went and parked at a park. He said after that, things got a little hazy. He ended up making his way to Polly's house, where he said he went through the front window of the home, which let me just say, is weird because we know that there was no forced entry into the home in either of the doors or the windows, and it didn't even appear that anybody had crawled in or out of the windows to begin with. He said that when he entered the home, he told the girls to lie down. He said that the next thing he remembers was him driving down the road with Polly in the front seat. He said he turned the car down a road and ended up getting stuck in the ditch. Polly was still alive when his Pento went into that ditch on Dana Jaffe's property. Richard said that he panicked, he didn't know what to do, so he had Polly get out of the car and sit on the embankment while he attempted to get the car out. Richard claims that when the babysitter came down the driveway, Polly was still sitting on the embankment alive and well. However, investigators do not believe that Polly sat there quietly when the babysitter stopped. They believe that Polly would have screamed or got up and made herself known. She wouldn't have remained sitting there. He then claims that once the police got him out of the ditch, he went to a gas station with Polly in the car still, and she asked to use the restroom. When she came back to the car, that's when Richard claims that he strangled her. But obviously, this has to be complete BS. The police would have seen Polly when they were asking Richard questions that night, when they were doing the field sobriety test on him. And let's not forget that they physically searched his car. There is absolutely no way that Polly was there alive and well that entire time and the police missed her. Police do not buy his story at all. They believe that Richard targeted Polly. They think that he had been stalking Polly and had watched her for up to two months before he struck on that fateful October night. Richard walked into that house prepared. That cloth that was found on Dana's property matched the cloth that was used to bind the girls, and that did not come from Polly's house. It had been brought into the home, and the pieces had been cut with scissors before entering Polly's house. That night, Richard specifically asked for the girl who lived in that house. He wanted the little girl that lived there for a reason. This was not a random act of violence. This was planned and thought out. 
Richard just wasn't expecting that Polly would have friends over that night. The investigators believe that Polly was likely inside the car on the floorboard, forced to hide there by Richard when the babysitter came down the hill. They believe after she left, Richard took Polly from the car, and that is when he sexually assaulted and murdered her. During the interrogation, Richard said he never sexually assaulted Polly. And he denied this likely because Richard didn't want to be labeled as a child predator in prison and have to deal with the repercussions of that while serving his time. Even though the authorities didn't believe Richard's story, they still kept their cool and they wanted him to at least tell them where Polly's body was. According to Richard, he left Polly somewhere outside of Cloverdale hidden beneath a piece of plywood about a quarter of a mile to a half a mile off the road. Cloverdale is about an hour north of Petaluma, and this seemed like an odd place to hide her body, but Richard assured them that she was there. Richard agreed to take the investigators to the location of her body. When they pulled up, Richard pointed in the direction and stood there leaning against the police cruiser, smoking a cigarette like it was no big deal that he just took a 12-year-old girl's life. There in the direction Richard Allen Davis pointed was a piece of plywood, and when they lifted it, they found the badly decomposed body of 12-year-old Polly Class. Detectives on the scene called back to the Petaluma police station to tell them that they found her and to call Mark and Eve down to the station to let them know. Mark says that when they arrived and they walked inside, they just knew. They knew that they had found Polly's body. He said that the police all had tears in their eyes as they gave them the news that no parent wants to hear. Mark describes this moment in an interview with 2020, and literally watching him talk about this took my breath away and had tears filling my eyes. He says that in that moment, they knew. And when they finally said the words, Eve cried, but he held himself together. They called their families, and when he finally went home, his family was there waiting for him, and that is when he exploded. He cried, he screamed, and he said his family had to physically hold him down to keep him from destroying his own home in anger. I cannot even imagine that level of pain and anguish they all felt, and it's heartbreaking to hear him talk about it decades later. When the news spread that Polly had been found deceased, it completely shattered the Petaluma community. They had always felt like their little town was safe, and now that sense of security was gone. It seemed like the entire city of Petaluma showed up for Polly's funeral. The pews of the church were full. The entire church was packed wall to wall with people, and many more people were standing outside of the church because it was so full that they couldn't get in. These people who didn't even know Polly or her family showed up to show support for them, and it's incredibly touching to know that Polly's story impacted so many people. 
It took nearly three years before Richard Allen Davis would have his day in court. And that day did not happen in Sonoma County because the amount of people who had come together to help search for Polly. They did not believe that Richard would be able to have a fair trial in Sonoma County, so they instead moved it to Santa Clara. The trial lasted over a month long before the jury was allowed to deliberate. Once again, the agony her family must have felt having to sit there for weeks on end listening to all of the details about their daughter's murder. Both Jillian and Kate were also put on the witness stand, and they were allowed to bring one adult up there with them to sit beside them. Both girls picked Jeannie Boyland, that second forensic sketch artist, to sit with them. That just goes to show the bond that she built with these girls. They wanted her there beside them while they told the story of their friend being abducted, which they knew ultimately led to her murder. They both sat on the witness stand telling the story, clinging to Jeannie Boylan's hand. The jury took a total of 20 hours to deliberate before they came back with a verdict. They found Richard Allen Davis guilty. At the end of the reading of the verdict, Richard turned and looked Mark Class in the eye. He winked, he blew him a kiss, and he flipped him off with both fingers. How Mark held his composure then is beyond me. But it was during the penalty phase that Richard was asked by the judge if he had any comment that he wanted to make. Richard said a few things, and he ended it by saying, quote, And I would like to state for the record that the main reason that I know that I didn't attempt any lewd act that night was because of a statement the young girl made to me when walking up the embankment. Just don't do me like my daddy. End quote. Richard was unable to finish his statement before the people in the courtroom started going crazy. And at that point, Mark had had enough and he attempted to go for Richard before he was forced out of the courtroom, cussing and screaming all the way out. I don't even have words for how I feel about this. For this man to have taken this innocent child away from her family and then to just be so nasty and hurtful is just beyond me. He is pure evil, and I wish so badly that Mark was able to have gotten his hands on him, even if it was only for a few good hits. I have so many words that I would like to say, but they also wouldn't fit with my trend of trying to avoid colorful cuss words on my podcast, but I can imagine what everyone else is thinking and feeling, and I can pretty much just tell you it's probably what I'm thinking and feeling as well. Richard was given the death penalty, and rightfully so. However, in 2019, California's Governor Gavin Newsom made the decision to halt the death penalty in the state of California. This completely outraged Mark Class, and he was quoted by Fox News saying that Gavin Newsom is a pig, and that Newsom told Mark that he didn't want to be the governor who executes an innocent person. In March of 2019, when he issued this moratorium, there was 737 people on death row in California. Polly's death, however, was not in vain. Her case has gone on to change how many things are handled, including the use of the internet to spread missing persons cases. Her case also changed how the FBI investigates these types of cases. 
technology, procedures, and protocols that were used and proven to work in Polly's case is now used widespread in missing persons cases that the FBI investigates. Her family also started the Polly Class Foundation. Their mission is dedicated to the safety of all children, the recovery of missing children, and public policies that keep children safe in their communities. According to their website that I will link in the description of this episode, their foundation has used their compassion, experience, and professionalism to help more than 10,000 families find their missing children. The website has a 24-7 hotline you can contact in case you ever find yourself in the unfortunate situation where your child is missing. They also have an area where you can donate directly to the foundation to help support their mission. Polly's story is one that I think I will forever have ingrained in my mind. She was such a beautiful, vibrant, and spunky young girl with so much life left ahead of her to live. The loss of Polly has left a huge hole in the lives of all that knew and loved her. Crimesters, that is all the information that I have on this tragic case. Thank you all so much for listening to her story. If you're not already a part of my private Facebook group, you can find it by searching Crime with Holly podcast discussion group. In there, I share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that I cover, and I also encourage all members to share all things true crime. You can also follow me over on Instagram at Crimeaholly, and if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me over on TikTok at crimewithholly.podcast. That is all for this week's episode. Until next time, be aware and take care. Bye-bye. 